Amen. Well, if you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 14, we'll be continuing there in God's Word this morning. John chapter 14. Now, if you remember from the last couple weeks that we find ourselves here in John 14 in what many call the upper room discourse of our Lord, where after his public ministry, after the public declaring of himself in the signs that he performed and the the miraculous wonders that he did, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, as we said last week, we saw that his own people, the Jews, have rejected him. They have not worshiped the Messiah, the one that was to come from Israel. They have rejected him and they have turned aside. And we see that our Lord now turns in these remaining chapters, in chapters 13 through 17, to what many call the upper room discourse, where he meets with his 12 disciples, now 11, having cast off Judas the betrayer. And he meets with them and he speaks to them these words of comfort. We've mentioned how one Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, called the Upper Room Discourse a window into Christ's heart, a window into Christ's heart that we see in, this, in these verses, we see these recorded nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere else in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, only here in John's Gospel, we see these intimate, comforting words that our Lord gives to His disciples, preparing them ultimately for His coming departure, His death on the cross, and his ascension into heaven. And we saw last week, we spoke about this promise of the Spirit, this promise of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth that would be sent to be with God's people forever. Christ promises that he will pray to the Father and that the Father will give them another helper, even the Spirit of truth, and that Christ will not leave his disciples but that he will come to them, he will reveal himself to them, and manifest himself to them. But what we're going to see this morning is there's sort of this question remaining. There's this question that is still lingering in the minds of the disciples. And the question is how? How is Christ going to manifest himself to his people? After his departure, after his death, after his ascension, he promises to be with his people, but the question is how? How is Christ going to be present with his people? What does it mean for God's people to have fellowship and union with Christ even after he has ascended to the right hand of the Father? How is it possible for our Lord to dwell with us and enjoy communion with us this side of heaven. How are these things possible? How is the love of God revealed and made known to us and yet not to the world and those in it? But what we're going to see today is that our Lord has not only promised the Spirit, but He has promised the blessing of Himself the blessing of himself and his continual presence with his people. He promises to unite them to himself, to reveal the love of the Father to them, to work in them by the Spirit, love for Christ and love for his commands. And we're going to see ultimately this 
promise of the triune God dwelling with His people, manifesting Himself to them even in the here and now. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will look at God's Word this morning. I'll begin at verse 18. This is the Word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will not see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. But Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father who loves him, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have great confidence this morning that as we come to Holy Scripture, we do not have the mere words of men, but the words of the living God. The means of salvation revealed to us, your people, that we might know Christ and the way of salvation that's only found in Him. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that by your Spirit you would illumine the eyes of our hearts, that you would open our deaf ears, that we might hear your word this morning, and that we might rest in the promises of the gospel as we see them revealed to us in your word. We are insufficient for these things. We are weak. We are frail. We're distracted. We're overwhelmed by the anxieties of this world and of our own hearts. But we pray this morning that you would calm our fears and that you would conform us even as we seek to hear from you this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three different things this morning. We're going to break this passage down into three different parts. First, we're going to look at the promise of Christ's presence in verses 19 through 21. The promise of Christ's presence. Secondly, we're going to look at the already and the not yet in verses 22 through 23. The already and the not yet. And then finally, in verse 24, we're going to see the evidence of unbelief. The evidence of unbelief. So we saw last week this great promise of our Lord that He will not leave His disciples as orphans. He will not leave them fatherless, but He promises to come to them. He says in verse 18, I will come to you. That phrase is actually very important in John chapter 14. We're going to touch on that later. It's repeated three times in John 14. I will come to you. 
Our Lord, as we've said so many times, knows how the disciples feel. (laughs) He knows they're in distress. He knows they feel helpless. He knows they feel afraid because he's leaving them. He said, I'm going to depart, and where I'm going, you can't come. And so they're afraid, they're fearful, and they feel lost. And this is not only because of our Lord's coming death, where he will be buried in a tomb and they will not be able to see him, but also when he raises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father, he will also depart from them into heaven. He will not be present with them bodily. But we see in verses 18 and 19 these great promises of our Lord that we, He will indeed be present with them. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And we can kind of see the double meaning of our words, Lord's here, of our Lord's words here. That he's not only speaking about his resurrection, right? His disciples will see him after his resurrection. He will come to them physically, bodily, as the first fruits of their resurrection, this new creation by the Spirit. But we also see how these words are fulfilled in Christ's exaltation and the pouring out of his Spirit. When Jesus says, I will come to you, he's not only talking about physically after his resurrection, but spiritually by the pouring out of his spirit. That Christ not only promises to be present with his disciples bodily, coming to them after his resurrection, showing them his scar-pierced hands as the pledge and guarantee of their bodily resurrection on the last day, but he promises to be present with them spiritually by His Spirit coming to them on the day of Pentecost, pouring out His Spirit upon His church, the great pledge and guarantee of His continual presence with His people. These are great promises of our Lord. I will come to you. You will see me. These are promises that we can take to heart. Not just the 12 disciples, but us here in this room. We will see our Lord with the eyes of faith, right? Not bodily, but with the eyes of faith. That His resurrection, because He lives, it is the promise of our resurrection and our eternal life with Him forever. And that on that day, we will know His union with the Father and our union with Christ by faith. That these are the great promises of Christ's presence with His people. Now we have to pause for a moment because I think we can kind of get confused here a little bit. If you remember last week, Jesus was just speaking about the Holy Spirit, right? The coming of the Helper, the Spirit of truth. And He says, even the Spirit of truth will dwell with you and will be in you, right? But then immediately in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you. I will come to you. And the question is, which one is it? Is it the Spirit that comes to us or is it Christ? Which one is our Lord referring to? But because of what we believe about the doctrine of God, about the doctrine of God's triunity, one God in three persons, 
Christ is the incarnate Son of God. And so for the Spirit to come to God's people is the same thing as the Son and the Father to come to God's people. Not because the Son and the Spirit are the same person, but because they share the same divine nature. So for the Spirit to be present with God's people is for Christ to be present with God's people. But what we see in verse 21 is not only the promised presence of the Son and the Spirit, but we see in verse 21 the promised presence and love of the Father, the ultimate blessing of communion and fellowship with the triune God. Our Lord says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We see in this passage the crowning blessing of the Christian life. The crowning blessing of the Christian life is to know the love of the Father, to know the love of God, to be reconciled to our Creator, that we who are sinful and wretched, who don't deserve God's favor or blessing, have been remade and are now loved by our Creator. And that because of His love for us displayed in the Gospel and the Spirit's work of regeneration in us, we can now love God where before, as Titus says, we only hated God and hated one another. That because of His work, we can enjoy fellowship and communion with God where before there was only amnesty. We have peace with God, as Paul says in Romans 5, and we now love Christ and the things of God revealed in the gospel. But we also see in verse 21 how this love of Christ is evidenced in the keeping of his commands and obedience to his word. He says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's kind of an inverse of what we saw in verse 15 last week, where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But as we spoke about last week, obedience to Christ and obedience to the commands of Christ is not the root of our salvation, but is the fruit and the evidence of God's work of salvation in us. And it is also, as we see in this passage, a means of deepening our love and our communion with the triune God. It's almost easy to get lost in this passage, especially the second part of verse 21. We see that God has loved us, right? We love because He first loved us. That the love of God brought to us creates love for God in us. And as we seek to love God... We obey His commands and His law, right? We, re- we obey the commands of our Lord. And that obedience creates a deepening love and communion with God, right? We all know this in our Christian life. It is when we are walking with the Lord that we know communion most deeply. When we fall into sin, when we wander in our faith, it is when we feel our communion weaken, when we feel as if His face is hidden from us. And so our Lord says that whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. This is a evidence of Christ's work in us. 
But we see that Christ not only promises to evidence himself in the disciples through obedience and love for Christ, but he also promises to manifest himself to his people, revealing, disclosing, and declaring himself to them. He says in verse 21, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. But as we see in this passage, not everyone understands what our Lord means by these words. And the disciples have not yet understood this big question of how this is possible. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. We see in verse 22 that Judas not Iscariot, not the disciple that would betray our Lord who has already been dismissed from the twelve, but Judas, the other Judas, he is confused by this statement from our Lord. He's perplexed. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He's trying to put all these pieces together and they're not fitting. They're not going together in his mind. And his question reveals that to us. He doesn't have a category for what our Lord is talking about. And I think the reason is twofold. The first one is this, that on one hand, to them, when Jesus was was talking here, when he was using this language, it sounded like to them, like Jesus was describing the end of the world. (laughs) That Jesus was describing the eschaton, the last day. This phrase that Jesus uses at the beginning of verse 20, in that day, is not just a phrase that Jesus pulled out of thin air. It's actually found many times in the Old Testament. And it is baked and has massive end times connotations and expectations. You go to places like Isaiah chapter 4, Jeremiah 33, that this phrase is used to talk about the coming of end times realities in that day. But we also see that when Jesus says He will manifest Himself to them, they would have been thinking of this manifestation of Christ as Christ's final manifestation to everyone. A clear and evident revealing of Himself to the world. They pictured this coming of Christ as this sort of physical coming in glory on the earth, conquering the worldly powers, defeating the Romans, and restoring the kingdom to physical Israel. And not only that, not only do they think that Christ is describing the end, but on the other hand, they hear him talking about this idea that the world will not see this reality, that the world will not see him, that they cannot receive him, and that they cannot know him, that the world will be excluded from this manifesting and revealing of Christ's presence. And that's why it's so important that we look at Judas's question in verse 22 when he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to show yourself to your people and not to everyone else? How is it possible for the end to come and yet not come finally? How can believers experience this promised presence of Christ without the world seeing or experiencing it. How are these things possible? And that brings us to this concept of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. This might be a new phrase for some of us. 
sometimes referred to as the overlap of the ages or the coming of the kingdom, this concept or idea that between the two comings of Christ, that the end, the age to come, has crashed into the present. And that what our Lord is here describing is not only the nature and coming of His kingdom, but the nature of His dwelling and abiding presence with His people even after He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. That if you were to ask a believer in the Old Testament, when Christ's kingdom comes, when God dwells with His people, when Christ reveals Himself, when the the Messiah manifests Himself, what will it look like? They would tell you it would be the end of all things. (laughs) It would be the coming of the kingdom would be this great end to all worldly evil and would be this great manifesting of the Messiah to all. But what our Lord reveals to us here and other places in the New Testament is that this promised kingdom of God would not only be inaugurated at Christ's first coming, but His kingdom would commence and continue spiritually and invisibly through the preaching of the gospel until His final and second coming, where there would be thirdly a consummation of all things on the last day. And what we see revealed here is that God's people living between Christ's two comings will indeed experience Christ's continual presence with them and dwelling with them. Christ manifesting Himself to them, the triune God making His home with them, the great end times hope of the future breaking into the present. But as we see in our passage, the disciples don't have a category for this. (laughs) They don't understand what our Lord is talking about. For them, God dwelling with them and manifesting Himself to them was the end. It was the great eschatological hope of the Old Testament. That's what we read in Ezekiel chapter 37. You could look at your handout if you wanted to see that. What does He say in verse 27? My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So they were following. They had read Ezekiel 37. They had read about God one day dwelling with His people forever. They had even followed our Lord's words at the beginning of John chapter 14, where He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, are many dwelling places. The Greek word is monet. There are many dwelling places. And that he goes to prepare a place for them. And then he says in verse 3, and I will come again. So they were following Jesus, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel promises that when God makes his dwelling place among them, Jesus says in John chapter 14 that he will come to them and make his dwelling place with them. Obviously talking about heaven and the, the realities of the end that God will dwell with his people in heaven on the last day forever. And so they were following with this. They were tracking with what our Lord was saying. But when He says that He will manifest Himself to them and not to the world, they don't have a category for, for what our Lord is speaking about. But that's what makes our Lord's answer to Judas's question so amazing. Because what He tells him is that these end times realities, these promises of God dwelling with His people, are not only for the future, but are 
for the present. That what he says in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home, our dwelling place, the same Greek word, our mone with them. That this is how Christ is going to reveal himself and manifest himself to his people and not to the world. It is by him and the Father coming to his people and making their dwelling place with them even now. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) This is unbelievable. It is the promise that the end has broken into the present, that the new creation purchased by Christ has begun in our very hearts as God's children, the triune God dwelling with His people by the Spirit. This is why Christ can say what He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. that Christ promises to come to His people really and truly to manifest Himself to them, revealing Himself to them so that He can say what He says in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. And so we can see how we live in this sort of in-between time, right? As one person said, it's like we have one foot on earth and one foot in heaven, right? The end has crashed into the present, this overlap of this age and the age to come. That even though we are sojourners and exiles on this earth, our citizenship is in heaven. We will dwell with God forever, but He promises to dwell with us even now. I love what one um, pastor said, Michael Beck, he said, what is promised of the great eschatological hope of the future is now broken into the present. That just as the disciples looked forward to their dwelling places in God's presence in heaven, the not yet, so now the Father and the Son would already make their dwelling place, their home, their monet with them here and now by the coming of the Spirit. that Jesus promised them that what was experienced at the end time would be experienced in part by them even in the present. This is the already and the not yet. Christ with us, Christ in us, the already, the hope of glory, the not yet. But we see also in our passage that not everyone will experience this reality. Not everyone will experience this indwelling power and presence of the Spirit. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning, the evidence of unbelief. The evidence of unbelief. We see that not all will have this new covenant work of the Spirit wrought to them. Some will not know this working of Christ and His Spirit. And we see in our passage that this is evidenced in their disregard for Christ's words and their breaking of His commandments. He says in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. That this is what we could call 
and evidence of unbelief, an evidence of a false profession. That if there are those that do not keep Christ's words, what they're showing, what they're revealing, what they're evidencing is that they do not love Christ truly, that they have not known Him, and that they have not been changed by Him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. These are very sobering words of our Lord's. They're very heavy words of our Lord's as we sit here and think about and contemplate these things. And we see the weight that they carry because Christ says that the word that you hear is not mine only, but it is the word of the Father. It carries the weight of the triune God. And so as we walk away from this passage, it really leads right into our application this morning, right? We see that there are some who do not know, do not experience, do not have this indwelling of Christ and the Spirit. And so our first point of application this morning is to see the absolute necessity the absolute necessity of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. The absolute necessity of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. That we see in our passage the necessity of Christ dwelling with us, the indwelling of us by the Spirit, the abiding of His presence forever. Because it is only those who have the Spirit dwelling in them, who have their hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh that have the law of God written upon their hearts and all the promises of the new covenant that can truly love Christ, that can truly obey His commands and have union and fellowship with Him. And this, in many ways, brothers and sisters, is what distinguishes Believer from unbeliever. This is what separates the sheep from the goats. True Christian from false professor. Or we could say it like Paul does in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, where he says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That to belong to Christ is to be united to him. <laughs> It is to have an interest in His gifts and graces. It is to know Him savingly, to enjoy Him and His covenant, and to have His Spirit indwelling you and moving you. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, That man is no Christian who is not the subject of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He may talk well. He may understand theology. He may be a sound Calvinist. He may be a man of so profound an intellect, so gigantic a soul, so comprehensive a mind, so lofty an imagination as to dive into all the secrets of nature. But he shall not be a Christian with all his knowledge, nor a child of God with all his wisdom, unless he understands what it is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling and abiding with Him. <laughs> that apart from this indwelling and abiding of the Spirit, we are without hope. We are lost and in our sin. And I think maybe some of us this morning are feeling proud, right? We're feeling self-sufficient in our faith, 
right? Maybe we're seeking to do this Christian walk on our own, and we need to hear this warning this morning that we cannot save ourselves, (laughs) that we are not able to do enough good works to merit salvation. We are completely lost without this supernatural work of the Spirit of God within us. We need this indwelling and working of the Spirit. But maybe for some of us this morning, we're not feeling proud, but actually very weak and frail. Our consciences are burdened by our sins, unsure of whether Christ really is present with us and indwelling us. Asking questions like, am I really saved? Has God's Spirit really indwelt me? Questioning our salvation and questioning whether God could ever save someone as sinful as us. But the question this morning is not first and foremost, am I a sufficient believer, but is Christ a sufficient Savior? Is He able to save sinners? And the answer is yes. And so the questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning are not, am I sufficient within myself, but is Christ sufficient? Is my faith found in Him and in Him alone? Have I trusted in His finished work as the only hope of my salvation? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then this is the evidence of Christ's work in you. This is the evidence of the Spirit indwelling you. This is the evidence of Christ manifesting Himself to you. Faith in the work of Christ. Faith in the promises of the gospel. But what's so amazing about the gospel, and so what's, what's so amazing about what Christ pictures for us here, and what He's done for us, is that Christ not only saves us by His grace, but by His Spirit, He also causes us to walk in His ways and empowers us to obey His commandments and to keep His Word. And that brings us to our second point of application this morning. Good works as evidence of Christ's work in us. Good works as evidence of Christ's work in us. And that we've kind of seen this several times in this passage and the previous, before, previous passage before, that obeying and keeping the commandments of Christ is not the root of our salvation, but is the evidence of Christ's work in us. We see that in verse 15. We see it in verse 21. We see it in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will obey. There will be fruit. There will be good works that accompany this faith in Christ. Not good works as the root of our salvation and a means of our justification, but good works as the fruit and evidence of Christ's work in us. I love what our confession has to say about this in chapter 16, paragraph 2. It says that good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. That as we seek to love Christ and as we seek to obey His commands, it shows, it evidences, it manifests this lively faith that Christ has gifted us. And it's so important for us to understand that this morning. That we are saved not by works of the law. We are not saved by works of the law. We are not saved by our obedience. We are not saved by our good works. 
In fact, we're saved before we have ever done a good work. But we are saved by faith alone, by receiving what Christ has done and resting on Him alone. But this faith, as we've said so many times, is never alone. It is always accompanied and evidenced by all these saving graces that come with salvation. Love for God, love for Christ, seeking to obey His commandments and His law. This is how 1 John 5.3 says it. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome to us. His commandments are not burdensome to us. And it's so important for us to see this this morning, brothers and sisters, that for the believer, for the one that's been saved by Christ, the one that has the love of the Father manifested to them, that for the believer, God is not some hard master giving us a yoke that we cannot carry and ready to cast us out as soon as we sin. But he is actually a loving father that is ready to receive us as dear children. The same one who says, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and I am gentle and lowly in heart. And that it is actually God's love and kindness that leads us to repentance when we fall into sin. And it is his grace that grows us in sanctification. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I beat upon my chest to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so much. That it is the love and grace of God in the gospel that actually changes us. That it is as we know the love of God more and more and more that we are actually conformed into the image of His Son. This is why Paul will pray for us in Ephesians chapter 3 that we believers might have strength to know what? The love of Christ that surpasses understanding, that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we might be strengthened by His Spirit even as we see the day drawing near. That this is the great hope of the Christian, to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding, to know the grace of God in the Gospel as the motivation for our love for Him and obedience to His commands. And so when we, when we step back and we see this reality in full color, what we see is that Christ in us, working in us, manifesting Himself in us, is our great hope this side of heaven. Even as we look forward to our heavenly home and the hope of glory. And if we can go back to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he says it in seven simple words that Christ in you is the hope of glory, right? Christ in you right now, a present reality, indwelling you by His Spirit, uniting you to Himself and His life and His death, the already and the hope of glory, the hope 
of the consummation, the hope of the day yet to come where God will make all things new. There'll be no death. There'll be no sin. We will dwell with our God forever. And we read in Revelation chapter 21, the great reality of these things. John says, and then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, we enjoy Christ's presence with us now by his spirit dwelling with us, working in us. And we look forward to heaven where we will dwell with him forever in the new heavens, in the new earth, where all things will be made new. We look forward to that great day and we praise God for his grace in saving us, revealing himself to us and promising us that one day he will make all things new. So let's pray this morning as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your infinite grace, your mercy that you've poured out on us in Christ. And that as we go from here this morning and as we struggle with our sin and we struggle with the trials and the tribulations that we face, we pray this morning, as Paul prayed, that we would know the love of Christ. What is the breadth and width and depth of the love of Christ? That we might know that you loved us enough to send your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. This is the great promise of the believer. And this is our great hope this morning. And so we pray this morning that as we come before you, as we prepare our hearts for the supper, that you would come to us, that you would indeed manifest yourself to us as we hear and believe the gospel and as we seek to live for you all the days of our life as we look forward to the last day, the day where you will dwell with us forever. We are insufficient for these things, and we rely upon you for your grace. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.